Brownie Island. Uh, there we go. Um, and welcome again. So this is Wendy Murdoch, and today my guest is Julian Vignon, who is formerly of Cavalia. And he sent me that video and I just thought I actually absolutely had to open with it. It was so fabulous. Um, so as you enter, just to make sure that you can hear the sound, everything's good, just type in the comments in the chat line where you're from. And if you have any questions, please put them there and I'll ask Julian as we go along. So um, Julian, that was so cool. And you know what my favorite part is? I remember seeing that performance live at Crystal City in DC. Right. Yeah, was Pentagon City. Ten years ago, I think, or something like that. It was yeah, actually my and first I still city. the Roman riding uh, and the trick riding is still my favorite part. I just yeah, they were it. very fun, very fun to do. Yeah, yeah, no, it was great. Bit of very nice experience. Yeah. So, Julian, a lot of people probably don't know who you are. So, what I'd like you to do, if you don't mind, is just give us a a, a little background, like where you're from, how you got started in all this, like. Um, you know, I'm really curious about that. So um, I'm from France, as my accent can let people guess easily. Uh, I'm from France. I've been riding horses my entire life. Uh, my dad was already a horse rider, and then with my brothers, I have three brothers, we all ride horses. So we grew up on a farm with horses, and we've been around horses our entire life. Um, I studied in school, passed a business degree, then decided to run for the circus, and then I started my career as a stunt. At first, um, how old were you when you ran away to the circus, which we all wanted to do, of course. <laughs> so I was about 16 when I started professionally. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was about 16 years old, but uh, parallel, I was keep going at school, and um, and I think it's about like when I was 19 or 20 years old, I just totally dropped school and just just focus on horses. So you joined. What circus did you join? Um, at first, I worked for different small companies in France, like little touring shows. Then after that, I started to work for more, um, so for bigger parks, uh, including Oops, broken up just park a little. and uh, a Western Park. Yeah, sorry? You broke up just a little. Just say where oh, you started sorry. again. So I started in different temp parks, and uh, one of them was La Mer de Sable, which is very close to Paris. Is a cowboy and Indians theme park. And then after that, I started to work for Disneyland Paris and movies. And from there, Cavalier contacted me and I decided to join the tour. So what year did you join Cavalier? I joined the show in 2008. Yeah. Okay. So let's see if it was, I think it was 11 years ago, the show was here. So that would have been, so you wouldn't have been there very long. No, actually, um, Washington DC was my first city with Cavalier. So I started in Washington DC. And uh, then from then we stay about three or four years in the US, Canada and Mexico. And then we moved to Asia and Australia. <laughs> so you've been around the world with this show. Yes, yeah, we've been traveling a lot. It was a lot of fun. Do you know how many performances you did? Oh, no, I worked for them for like about 10 years and we have seven shows a week. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, and so is it, is it seven days a week? No, you got a day off, right? We had one day off. So it's six, uh, six show, six days a week, seven show, two on a Saturday. And, um, and we have, so we still about like between six and eight weeks in a city. 
And after that, we moved the big top to another city. And then during that transition period of time, horses and performers have a break. So how many horses did you have in the show? There were about 50 horses on tour. And um, were they horses? I mean, where'd you get the horses from? What kind of horses? Um, so horses, we actually really get horses everywhere we can along the road as we need. Um, Cavalier is a great company. Like they really take care of the horses very well. So fortunately, we didn't have to replace horses, but some of them was getting old. And then we bought a couple of them in Australia, uh, of course, Canada and the US. Few of them come from Europe or so. Wow. So, so okay, I'm sure everybody's wondering, you, you know, like um, people always glorify what it's like to be a performer or to be on the road. I mean, I know with people, people always say to me, wow, you must, you know, it must be great going to all these places. And um, I see a lot of arenas and horses and dust and sun, and I don't get to see a lot of other things. So I'm kind of curious what your experience was like traveling and, and whether that was similar or whether you actually got to have some fun and like go out and socialize and go on the town at night. Uh, it's pretty much the same thing then you because we work six, uh, six days a week. So of course the seventh, uh, we're just so tired and we don't really do anything. So we don't have much time to visit the city by itself and just have fun. We work a lot, we start very early and then we finish around 11.30 or midnight. So they are very, very long days. Um, but we have those kind of like mini vacation every, every eight weeks, which give us the opportunity to visit a bit of uh, the country where we are. Yeah. So, um, so like, you, did you also take care of the horses or did you have a whole crew that just took care of the horses and you trained them? Now, we were very lucky. Uh, we had an army of grooms. We had like about like 15 or 20 grooms for 50 horses, which is a lot, a lot of people. So now we didn't have to like take care of the horses really. Our main focus was just training horses and increasing the performance and the level of the show. All right, so now I'm, sh I'm sure people are curious about the training um, and, and what it was like, um, you know, like how you got started with the training, what your concepts of training are. Just give us some ideas there. So there's few things uh, to me were very important uh, when it comes to train horses. First of all, is like taking the time. Second one is respecting the natural um, ability of horses to analyze the situation and being able to re um, remember what we ask for them. I see very often people trying to rush things. And to me, laying some very good base, some very good foundation is the first uh, step that everyone should take. And this is what we really try at Cavaliac. All of our horses were doing dressage, jumping, liberty, all of them. Uh, of course, we use some for very specific act, but all horses are different discipline than you can practice and getting good at so you know i mean there's a lot of people like well actually for me one of the uh first circuses that i ever saw where i saw the training was circus Kinney in switzerland i don't know are you familiar with them i never heard of them oh really circus no. Kinney is like a, a national treasure in switzerland it was 75 years old when i was there back in the 90s so um it was started by freddie Kinney. Um, before World War II, and um, during World War II, they took all the uh, all the mares and geldings. So after that, he only had stallions, so they couldn't steal his horses for the war. <laughs> um, but it was really fun because the training was all open to the public, and everybody can go and watch. And Freddie's training philosophy was always with kindness and and education. Um, and so that was something that I really really appreciated watching his training and understanding what they were doing. Um, so, 
it sounds to me like this is similar that you need to make sure that the horses are happy and it's positive and that they understand what they're doing rather than just being told what to do. Now, it's, um, it's definitely very important, but also when you perform that often for that long, of course, we have few horses, um, we have few backup horses if any one of them was getting too tired or sore or injured. Um, but when you perform that often with that kind of freedom, you need to leave your horse a space to tell you what he wants to do that day. And there is some day where the horses were more uh, expressive, more, more dynamic, and then we were playing with that, and some day where they were more slow and uh, tired, and then we also have to play with that. We never had to force our horses to please uh, whoever the, the the producer of the show or the audience. So it was really just an interaction and trying to get the best of whatever the horse wanted to do that day without uh, sacrificing on their performance. Yeah, that's really awesome. And um, I think that's uh, one of the things that really came across in the performance was that I just remember it being fun, just fun watching you guys. And, you know, I still get chills when I think about it. I remember the, the jumping over the pole that the guys were holding. And I literally, I still get chills thinking about that performance. Yeah, it's, um, it's very interesting because there's a lot of different disciplines and every riders and every horses, as I said, was um, pretty disciplinary. So we're all doing different things. We're all doing a bit of dressage, a bit of uh, liberty, a bit of everything. But the atmosphere, the general idea that you get from the, from the audience, it's exactly the reflection of what is happening backstage. Meaning that every, I work for many companies and the reason for I stay 10 years for Cavalier is because all the respect that you can witness from the audience and stage, it's, um, it's the same that we have backstage. So the, we, never ref, we never had to force our horses, we never had to push too hard. Uh, it, was, it was really respectful, it was a beautiful company. Yeah, no, it's really uh, quite. And so, so um, Frederic was, well, did he start Cavalia or you trained with him at that point, right? No, I arrived just after Frederic left. So Frederic Pignon and, um, and Normand Tourelle was the two founder and creator of the show um, among a big list of choreographer and, and directors and everything. But uh, they're the two founders of the show, Frederic Pignon and Normand Tourelle, the producer. Um, then he stayed, I think, for about like five or six years and leave the show to start a new project. And that's where I came in the picture. Oh, okay. So were you the head trainer? Uh, for Liberty, yes. Oh, wow. Okay. So tell us about Liberty training, like how you would get a, how you start a horse or what's the keys to Liberty training the way you were doing it? Are the way then I like to do it is really taking my time, as I said before, um, laying some very good foundation, being able to recognize every um, answer than a horse offer to me and making sure that I don't take it for granted. Um, meaning that everything that I do with my horse, first of all, I always try to attract them to me before to start to creating distance. So I'm going to try to attract the shoulder towards me. I'm going to try to attract the hips towards me, then the entire body of the horse. And before to put distance, before to send him away, I want to make sure that I can keep him relaxed and safe around me. And that's really what I try to focus um then also to avoid frustration i think it's very important to take our times and making sure then we give the horses the time to process the information so i remember you did a workshop here in virginia because i'm fortunate enough that jillian lives not far from me at all actually you're probably about an hour away maybe an hour and a half um and uh 
you did a workshop in um, in Flint Hill. Yes. Um, at Hidden uh, High Meadow. And it was so fascinating to watch you because I've seen other Liberty work, but most all the Liberty work that I've seen has worked on driving the horse, coming in from the hindquarters and driving. And I'll never forget that you did that and you did it like once or twice. And then you went, okay, that's done. And you went to the shoulder and you started working from the shoulder and just asking the horse to take a step over from the shoulder and didn't matter which way he went, didn't matter which shoulder you touched, but just the idea of moving from the shoulder. I was so struck by that, um, that I had to run back home. Fortunately, it was close enough. And I grabbed Sharon Wilsey's book because, <laughs> because as soon as I saw you do that, I, I was like, um, as soon as I saw you do that, I knew that what you were working on was something that was innate to the horse, that it wasn't something you taught the horse, but something the horse already recognized as meaningful because it happened so fast. I mean, it was like in seconds, these horses were with you. And so I ran home and I grabbed Sharon's book and I came back and I looked at her book and she talked about the follow me button on the shoulder. And it was about the same area where you had touched with the whip. And it, and it just struck me so strongly that most everybody worries about the rear end and driving the horse, but, but very few people actually say, hey, come with me like it's cool. Like, let's do this together. And the horses were with you so fast. I, it was just, it was, it just blew me away. I just remember that as such a striking moment. Uh, there is, um, to me, the, the, this feeling, I'm not saying that I have all the key and I'm just keep experimenting and keep trying. And maybe in a few years from now, we just realize that I'm wrong. But so far, what I'm trying to do is not disengage the hips because I'm also a dressage rider and I figure like a lot of people, then the horse is well balanced where his weight is mostly on his back legs. So every time that I'm going to try to attract my horse to me by drifting the hips away, then not only I'm creating unbalance to my horse, but I also teach my horse to like move away from pressure. My point is trying to bring my horse to come toward the pressure. The pressure is not have to be something hard or something difficult or something painful. When I'm talking about pressure, I'm just talking like about a slight touch of uh, my dressage stick on the shoulder, exactly like the hand of a friend would be on your shoulder when you walk down the street and being like, okay, let's move on together. Let's move on as one. And this is really something I'm trying to up. One of the beautiful things by walking that way is like if you walk with several horses in the same times, you can get the attention to only one and not the others, which is great for performance purposes. Also, um, I tried for a very long time to ask my horses to arrive collected and beautiful and ready to, um, ready to rear up. I realized that every time that I was drifting those hips away from me, like, uh, like uh, I was told before, my horses, them rear up was always uncoordinated. They could not keep it for long. And does complete sense and um, it makes complete sense like if you drift those hips then your horse arrive with all his weight on the shoulder and you cannot ask your horse to elevate and hold that position for a long time because already it's not in a good um, position well, for it. and this is one of the things when i you know i watched the horsemanship and they kept talking about disengaging the hindquarters one one of the things i know is that my favorite book it's called understanding equitation by jean saint fort payard another frenchman and and he would talk about that engagement is anytime the hind leg comes under the body and disengagement is anytime the hind leg went behind the body. And it's a question of quality, whether it's good engagement or poor engagement, how far under the body it steps, is it into the print, over the print, or not into the print of the front foot. Um, 
But, you know, this whole idea that I want my horse's rear end engaged so that he has lifting power because he has to carry me. Um, I was always confused by this A term of disengagement, which didn't make sense. And B, why would I want to take the drive out of my horse when I want my horse to be able to collect? And he's got to be able to sit down to collect. And uh, more recently, what I've found, because this has become a popularized idea now for quite a while, is that the horses just grind down into the front end, and then we can't get the thoracic sling engaged and get the withers up. So, you know, it, when we think about the, the end result, and I think this is one of the things that um, a lot of people, if they haven't trained a horse all the way through, that they don't have the end result in mind, so they're not sure what the training they're doing at the beginning, how that's gonna play out in the end, and what things they might have to resolve or retrain because of what they did in the beginning. I'm agree, I'm agree. Really often I see, um, I see people who spend a lot of time on the ground with them horses doing uh, different kind of training, and then after that when they start to ride them horses, they find themselves that um, them horses move their hips very easily, but then the shoulder become like really stuck into the ground, which uh, can lead to a lot of uh, difficulty when you come to collecting, uh, try to collect in your horse or just jump, uh, very basic jumps. And um, there is also something that I find interesting, like really often we talk about um, positive reinforcement. And I'm not really sure where I stand about yet, but I, every time that I touch my horse, if I ask him to move away from that pressure, so I touch a hip, you move away from the, from the stick, I touch the shoulder, you move away from the, from the pressure again. To me, it does make sense that one day if your horse starts to get anxious and nervous or focusing on something that he never seen before, the first thing that he want to do is moving away from that. It makes sense because we've been telling them all the time, if I touch you with my stick, you move mm -hmm. away. I touch, you move. I touch, you move. So positive reinforcement, I would like to go and dig a bit more and dive a bit more into it to really understand what those people are trying to say about positive reinforcement. Is it if you do something good, I give you a treat. Is that positive reinforcement? Yes, I think it is. But if I touch my horse and he move away, it's not really positive reinforcement because I'm just positively reinforcing to go away from whatever is creating, creating um, anxiety, anxiety. And I might be wrong, but so far it's the way that I walk and uh, it works very great. I can bring almost every of my early horses on stage with like 2,000 people, live music, projections, uh, lights and water and everything you can. And we do not have to desensitize our horses to all of that. And that's a great thing, especially when you're a traveling show. You bring up so many points just there. I wanna kind of parse this down a little bit. Um, the, the, um, we'll talk about the reinforcement because um, basically, as I understand it, when you're uh, positive and negative is a question of whether you add or take away. So positive reinforcement is when you add something and negative reinforcement is when you take it away. So like if I take away your food bowl, I, it's negative reinforcement. Right. Um, and, and then there's, there's two parts to that. There's, I forget it now. I, you know, the problem with those words is I always have to go back and look up the meanings again. And maybe somebody can put in the chat the difference between positive and negative. Oh, it's, that's right. There's positive and negative reinforcement and punishment. So positive is adding, negative is taking away, and then reinforcement is one side and then punishment is the other side. But the words get so confusing. But before we get to that one, I wanna to talk to you about desensitizing because I hear people talk about, oh, I wanna desensitize my horse. And personally, the last thing I wanna do is make my horse insensitive. 
I actually want to educate my horse so that he can evaluate a situation and determine that he is safe and it's okay. I don't want him to just tolerate it. So, so talk a bit about desensitizing and what your perspective is. Well, I think it's, uh, it's very dangerous when we start to talk about des uh, desensitizing a horse uh, for exactly the same reason. And you, first of all, because um, I think horses should be alert. I think we have a friend in common, uh, Lucinda. Oh, Lucinda Green. Yes. Not Lucinda Green, Lucinda oh. Baker. Sorry, there's no Lucinda Green. Lucinda and, uh, in um, she, Oregon. Yeah, she was telling me a story. She told me that she was on a trail ride and she uh, tried to cross a trail or something like that. And then the horse didn't want to go anywhere and she started like, to push it. And she realized that there is a snake on the middle of the trail and she hasn't seen the horse yet. So desensitizing a horse at that point that is not scared of anything, I think it's, a, I think it's an issue. I think we should leave our horses being aware of them surrounding. I think a horse is aware of his surrounding is a safer horse. Um, and I also think that sometimes if we start to fall into that trap of desensitizing to everything, then there is no end to it. Um, if you start to desensitize your horse to green car, then the next day you have to do it with yellow car. And then after that, you have to do it with red motorcycle and you have to do it like with every single thing. So why can we not find a way to, to uh, follow our horses and help them to just go through all those uh, different things instead of like breaking it down for them and make everything become a huge deal. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And so um, the way I think about it, and this, it's interesting because I was at Lucinda Baker's with Stephen Peters and Sharon Wilsey actually um, a year ago, uh, Memorial Day weekend. And um, I like to think about it uh, from a perspective of education and that if I, if I teach you one thing and then I teach you something else, I also help you be able to make the connections like this is a pen and this is a pen. They might look totally different, but they're both pens. You can write with them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, I want my horse to be able to make associations rather than you know, act blindly, I, you know, ignore it, or it's not there, or, you know, I can't see it, or I'm not going to, you know, I mean, that's the way I think about it is to have the curiosity to investigate and find out it's safe and okay, rather than be afraid or, you know, denying, like in Absolutely. a state of freeze. And that's why to me, always touching our horses with our leg and wanting them to move away from them, touching our horses with a stick and want them to move away from them. Just encourage us behavior that if there is something unknown, something strange, then you have to move away because we, 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 we set them that way. And then that's why I'm trying to, I touch the right shoulder to have the horse coming with his right shoulder towards me. I touch the left because I want the horse coming to, and then um, I find that, um, yeah, very effective. Yeah, well, that was, you know, when I watched you, it, it was so rapid that the horses were with you. And then the other thing that was really fascinating, and, and this is something that um, I wanted to talk about, too, is that there were other people there that had done different types of liberty training with their horses. And to the uneducated eye, someone might say, oh, that person's liberty training is great because there's nothing on the horse and the horse is with them. But what became so obvious watching you was that the horse, I, I don't know how to put it. It's not that he did, he, he, he wasn't a happy, and happy is a really tough word to put with horses. But, you know, when they got the opportunity, they left their person. And when they got the opportunity with you, they chose to, they could go, but they came back. And then they chose to stay with you. So, you know, the, it's hard for the, the uneducated person 
to be able to discern the difference between quality liberty work that's done in a way that's positive and liberty work that's more, um, uh, you know, less choice by the horse, I guess is probably, and maybe you can talk about that and do a better job than I'm doing. <laughs> well, I think what you're trying to say is like sometimes when you see uh, people practicing in, uh, in Liberty, you see the horses take off and when they take off, they take off for real. It can take 15 minutes to get them back. And I had that and I don't want that to happen on stage anymore. So uh, I decided to really take my time and walk slowly and once again, laying some very good foundation. The reason why is because if you get understand by your horse and if you walk slowly and give him the time to process the information that they don't feel trapped. By the fact that they don't feel trapped, they don't need to run away. It's okay to have uh, to lose focus of your horse. I don't know any Liberty trainer in the world will tell you, I can keep the focus of my horses 100% all the time, whatever the act I do for, our, for whatever the time I want. Uh, we all lose our horses. What is interesting is to see the reaction of the horse. If your horse take off when he's not doing the exercise, that means that he's going to, he understands that he's going to get scored just behind it. And uh, if you start to fall into that trap, once again, if you're alone at home, yeah, you can fix it. But if you are in front of 2,000 people and your horse take off, it's not good. Um, so I prefer to take my time. And this is maybe what I like to call more positive reinforcement. Is like no matter what they do, I'm not going to chase them down. I'm not going to make them run. I'm not going to try to become the alpha or dominant. Um, I still don't know where I stand about all this notion of dominant and alpha. Um, I hope I will figure it out one day. <laughs> but um, so far, I'm trying really to see like more of a partnership between the horse and I. And that's why even during clinics, when I have like 10 people in the same time, some horses go, but they always stay around us. So, yeah. And I think, you, you, again, you bring up a lot of really good points. And um, so the positive and negative reinforcement and positive and negative punishment comes from the behavior modification world. Um, and uh, it's very much looking at a behavior mod level. Then you have um, Dr. Peters, whom I kind of align with a bit more because he talks about brain and the neurochemistry in the brain. And since I'm a, a scientist by training, that makes sense to me that when horses, um, when, when we learn and, when, and, and look, none of us give anybody 100% of our attention. I mean, it has to be something really traumatic, like a train is about to hit us before we're really 100% present, right? So why would we expect our horses to be 100% focused on us when we're not even doing that for them? That's you know, true. We don't give them that kind of attention. Um, we're busy thinking about whatever, what's for dinner and what happened in the office and you know, I got so much time. So there's that piece. But the thing that I keep looking at and why I want to, I always talk more about education is that when we're learning, we need to have an experience and we need uh, a way to make the, the experience meaningful. Um, and so when we study things about the brain, they talk about nerves that fire together, wire together. So you have less than half a second between an action and a response to that action for the nervous system to make the association between the two. And it doesn't matter what the reinforcer is. It could be just cessation. Like you start to do something and I stop asking and that reinforces and wires it together. Mm -hmm. um, and to break a habit, you have to stop using it. You can't keep ticking up the cigarettes if you're gonna quit smoking, 
right? Um, so in the brain at that point, what's happening is when you give the cessation, the nervous system goes through a process. There's dopamine, that's your lick and chew. But Dr. Peters talks about then if you let them rest longer, you get serotonin. And serotonin is that brain chemical that that's the feel good chemical. It's the one that people take Prozac to have more of, um, but it's the feel good chemical. And at that point you get the dendrites starting to form between the neurons so that you can make greater associations. So when you see similar things, you can say, this is a ball, this is a ball, this is a ball. Even if they're different colors and different sizes, you're like, oh, that's all around shape. That's a ball. Um, and I, and I noticed with you, with your training that there's a lot of, um, uh, uh, pause time, right? Yes. Um, once again, it's part of like laying those good foundation. First of all, I find that um, humans we are terrible about body language. We are really, <laughs> really, really bad. Yeah. Um, and I see a lot of people fidgeting, making like a thousand different movements to just giving one order to them horses. You take like someone who's going to launch his horse. Of course, you have a lot of people who are very experienced and, and then everything is clear to them. But if you take the first time someone trying to launch his horse, he's going to have his shoulder different orientation. He's going to fidget. He's going to move his arms. He's going to move. And all of those movements and recreate are clear indication. They are like full sentences to our horses. So the first thing is like being able to just stay still. And humans, we are terrible at it. <laughs> we are so bad. We just always like look somewhere, do something, move something, make a noise, touching fast, kissing fast, yelling fast. Uh, we never stop. And I think it's something that just going to get worse and worse with all like, you know, technology and all of that. So being able to really slow down, breaking down all our movement, being in balance, even if you're just on your, on your foot, a lot of people are not even balanced on their foot. So they have no balance on them horses and their horses have no balance. Um, so I like to take really my time. I like to don't move at all, but every time that I move, I want it to be clear, meaningful and understandable for my horse. Yeah. Um, we have a question from uh, Lisa and she says, how long on average does it take to arrive at a level of training such that they trust you in a show environment? It's going to depend. Uh, which exercise, I would say like, if a horse is like, a horse who is used to go on a trail ride, see different environments, see different places, it doesn't really need to take more, much time. It's going also to depend which exercise you do. If you wanna do every exercise, it's going to ask movement, it goes pretty fast. If you start to go more into lay down and bowing, which is more, more vulnerable position for the horse, then that might going to take a bit longer. So um, do you have a memory of a horse that was particularly difficult to train? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, that, that horse. Um, I had some who were very, I had some who teach me more than others, like every riders, I guess. Um, to me, the worst are the ones who, who are shut down. Because a horse who's trying to refuse whatever exercise, it's already a horse who's trying to find a solution. Maybe it's not the one I want, but at least he's trying something. The worst to me are the ones who just checked out. They are not here anymore. Uh, you can try to do everything that you want. You can walk slowly. You can walk fast. You can walk aggressively or very kindly. Some horses are just not there anymore. And to me, those are the worst. And when you are talking about, like, I take my time, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. And that's my way of helping those horses 
were shut down and in so much into them own head that they're not aware about them surrounding anymore. Really often we ask, we ask our horses to do different exercises, different things, and the answer is not always the one we want. Mm-hmm. True. But it's not because the answer is not the one we want and we have to push and we have to rush or we have to use strengths because it's an answer already. So if I ask my three-year-old son to do something for me and do the opposite, I'm not going to slap him on the face. I'm going to thank him and be like, this is not exactly what I want. And that's to me very important for horses. There is nothing that they do wrong. There is some stuff that they don't understand. It's natural for to answer to a human. So everything they do, we have to take it as a gift and redirect it to better suit our needs. So in a lot of ways, it sounds like the response you get from the horse is a mirror of what you said. And maybe we need to be clearer, like see that perspective and then figure out how can we be clearer so that their mirroring of our request is what we wanted. Being clearer, um, read, avoiding walking under frustration or anger. Um, I believe that horses and humans are the same about that. We can only learn when we are in that phase in our head, when we're calm and we can receive the information, we can analyze the information, we can treat it and remember it. If we are in stress, if we are in different kind of state of mind, it's really hard uh, to walk and remember anything. And once again, to me, like horses don't do anything wrong. It's our job to try to find the best way to explain them that's, that's not what we wanted from them. Uh, yeah, and it's tough right now because a lot of people are really stressed given the pandemic. Some people can't get to their horses. Some people, when they do get to their horses, are so worried about lo- losing their job or, you know, there's a lot of stress right now. And um, I've talked with Laura uh, Plunkett, and we've talked about this a little bit because the animals are reacting to the stress that people are under currently. And I totally understand that. Um, I would say avoid being around your horse if you cannot control yourself. It seems terrible to say, but it's true. Like I've been a performer for like over 15 years. I know what it is to walk under pressure. I know what it is to walk when you think that you, it's not going, like nothing good's going to happen at the end of your session. Just take a break and come back maybe the next day. Um, it's, it's the prime of being a rider. It's like we don't walk only with our emotion, but we have to deal with the one of our horses. And our horses don't have to deal with ours. Yeah, I've been spending a lot of time at the barn, but not necessarily sitting on my horse. Yeah. <laughs> no. And that's okay. You know, like, um, I'm getting to the barn. For me, that's, that's a big plus. Um, <laughs> because normally I'm on the road. So um, at least I'm getting to the barn. I kind of feel like I've accomplished something there. Um, so somebody's asked a question. They, they say... Um, has a horse ever done something completely different than what you asked, but turned out remarkably well? Every single time. <laughs> <laughs> My job was like to fake that I did it on purpose, but I didn't <laughs> Now, many times, of course, many times when horses are doing things, it's funny because really often, um, even people who watch the show several times are saying like, oh, that horse is always doing that. And I think he's a trainer who asked him to do that. It's not true at all. <laughs> I know. Sometimes the horses were just doing whatever they wanted to do. And it was our job to smile and look pretty and try to make it sound like it was on purpose. Um, but I think that's the beauty of, uh, of Liberty. And that's what I really like with Cavalier. Uh, the stage, the way that it was designed, the live music, 
everything was made on purpose to let freedom of movement for the horses and let them taking their own decisions and offer whatever they wanted to do. One of my horses, like the paint horse you can see on the, on the video, especially was going on a barricade, which is the little wall between the audience and the stage, right? And then he loved standing up on that thing, but uh, until every single person clapped his hand, he was not coming down. <laughs> So I had many times, I had to ask people to clap more because it was not going down until you get enough claps. I was like, okay. You know, some people think that horses uh, don't enjoy their job, but I think when a horse has the job they really like, they really enjoy it. And, um, and, and so I think in that case, he really enjoyed his, what he was doing. Yes, and there, there, is a, oh, there is a story like that of a guy who teaches horse how to count. Oh yeah, clever Hans. Yeah. yeah. But actually, the horse didn't know how to count. It just uh, it was able to feel the energy of the audience, and then more they were getting excited, and more it was hitting the ground with his hoof, and uh, and then he was stopping when the when people was at the highest of them excitement, and then everybody thought that the horse could. And I think that performing horses, uh, performance horses are kind of like the same way. They start to feel the vibe. My energy definitely the one of the audience for sure. And then they just play with that excitement. And when they used to the stage enough, then they can just play with that because they know that it's safe. And they just offer some very beautiful moments. Yeah. So I think that you just touched on it, but the feeling safe is probably the absolute key toward the kind of performance that we're talking about. That the horses have to feel safe with the people that they're around. It's a, it's a very vulnerable position for a horse to be laid down, especially like during a solo act, if you see a horse laying down. Uh, so one of the acts that, that I had, and that was a very big challenge, you can see really often people ask them horses to lay down. You can see people doing it on stage. It's a bit more rare when you have, uh, I have eight dancers who was around me when I was asking my horse to lay down. So like if you have eight people who not, don't, they don't know anything about the horses because they're dancers, right? So they dance around that horse and then they make big movement and then being able to keep him calm with 2000 people in the audience, eight dancers around projection musics and all of that, that's, um, yeah, that asks a bit of, uh, of partnership and trust. Yeah, absolutely. So was that the hardest thing you've ever asked a horse to do or is there something else? Like what's the most difficult thing you ever trained a horse to do? Um, just dealing with me <laughs> it's already pretty good for us good job on them um i don't know what i what i've been teaching i mean i see so many videos and so many it's pretty basic um just trying to do whatever i can but make it clean that's why i'm i'm taking my time in everything i do um i don't remember if there is one exercise and i asked specifically to my horse but i was able to witness many times some very beautiful gift that my horses give me and a lot of generosity in everything they do. And I think this is, I think this is the hardest thing for me. It's like making sure that I keep always that generosity and that um, willingness of doing the exercise. Yeah. So um, we met, oh, it's only been, what is it? Two years ago? It was two years ago or Easter. Wasn't that long ago. No. Yeah. True. Yeah. 
And um, Catherine Wyckoff, whom I did a webinar with uh, about Feldenkrais method, uh, introduced us to each other because yes. obviously you speak French and she's from Belgium. So you guys, when I saw you guys speak in your native tongue, it was like, oh, I'm out of here. I don't know any French. <laughs> um, but it was really great. She organized so that we could get together so I could show you Surefoot. And, um, and I know that you've, uh, you've become a big fan. Um, well, as we as we discussed, like horses um, need um, they need to feel safe, and when you travel as much as I do or you do, um, it's interesting to being a, what we're trying to do is like recreating the same environment for the horses all the time, and I think that using some whatever equipment or stables or whatever you use to try to create that environment that cocoon, then the horses feel safe. And shuffled pad, I think, can be a great help for everyone who travels a lot because every time that gives them a reference, that gives them something, then they can rely on something that they know, and that's reassuring. And when your horse is reassuring and safe, then everything becomes possible. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, it's so fascinating um, having created Surefoot. And it's really altered the way I look and think about things over the past eight years that I've been doing this because. The, the more and more I do it, the more I realize the horses are just waiting for us to say something that's meaningful and something that's quiet and meaningful to them. And I think you're right. I think we're really, really too busy um, and we're too, you know, just noisy to them. And uh, when I use the pads, I always get quieter. I notice all the people around me get quieter and the horses get quieter. So it's kind right. of gets on the same vibe. But see, the way that you walk and you present, especially when you present for the first time, uh, you, pass to, you pass to the horses, it's the same way that I do, meaning like you don't force, you propose, you offer. Then if it moves around, if it's not perfect, that's okay. And um, you, know, you always say that if you get up of it, it's fine. Just yeah. let him walk off and then you can bring him back on later. And that's exactly the same idea. It's like not forcing, not trying to constrain uh, horses to do something and like keep them at the same spot. Like, you're like, okay, you're a horse, you need to move, you need to try, you need to feel, you need to make your, um, your experience. And I think that's exactly the same uh, mining that we have about that. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, um, it's a suggestion and an offer and I see how they respond. And I think that's the same when I watched you work, it's you, you give them an idea and you see how they respond and then it's an interaction, it's a conversation. Yes. It's not a, there isn't a rote program. And so many people, whether it's training horses or using surefoot pads, want a very linear step A, B, C, D, you know, so they can follow the steps. But, you know, what I keep telling people over and over is, this is how you get started, but you and your horse, the, your horse is going to show you where you go from here. And it's being present with your horse to respond and to inter interact. That's really the key, not doing what someone else says, this is how you do it. And the quest of um, perfection is so human. Like there's no animal trying to perfect the movement naturally. Um, so if you want to achieve any kind of result at a high level or to just like, you know, stand off pads or, or staying quiet, that's our human way of thinking. So we need to take the time and explain them that there's nothing wrong in what they do. We just, you know, want something more or something different than what they're offering. Yeah, you know, you have to think like, um, it, for, for us, at least in this culture, um, you know, when I think back to school, you were supposed to sit in your desk, be mm -hmm. quiet, listen to the teacher, you know, spit back the right answer, don't disrupt anything. And so this, um, 
culture of education of wrote, you know, teacher tells and you feedback. Um, we're kind of, we've lost the creativity and imagination that really mm -hmm. should go along with learning. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah, I agree. No, I completely agree. And um, yes, you, you stop that uh, creativity and you, you just miss a lot of beautiful moment by doing so. Yeah. And, um, and forcing people or foxing horses, I really don't think it's the best way to do it. And you can achieve some very high level of performance uh, by taking the time and using kindness, I believe. Yeah. So um, let's see, we have a question. Um, Julian, do you have any plans for a book? For a book? Uh, one day when I will be good enough and, so, <laughs> and being <laughs> sure of what I, like, what I say today is probably different than what I'm going to say in two years from now. That's why when I teach, I just try to give whatever works for me for now. And that's why I always try to say, like, this is the way that I had to work. Um, I just think that horses are the master of like make you realize that you don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. So it's hard for me to write a book because sometimes I'm going to work a certain way and I've been developing my technique and giving a few tips to people. But this is what I like to tell people when I give clinics. I'm like, I give you my tools, put them into a toolbox, take them out when you need it. But it is not a method. I don't think there is one method. If there were one, we'd all be reading the same book and we'd be working with everyone and every horses. And there is none. So the only thing I can give is like those few tools that I was able to find or to create and to try. And then people use whatever they want. And... Yeah, you know, um, way back when I was trying to figure out a name for my company, somebody told me Murdoch Method. And I, I resisted uh -huh. it for a million years and finally was like, I can't come up with anything better. Um, but the only method I have is madness. Is, <laughs> you know, I take everything I want. I chuck it into the pot. I stir it around. And I see what comes out. And sometimes it's great soup. And sometimes it's like, you know, not so great. But I just keep experimenting. And I think that that's a lot of it. Um, for me, my method is madness. Um, so we have another question. I think this is a good question. It says, what kind of reward do you prefer to use to communicate to your horse that they have offered the desired answer for your question or your request? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. Uh, the best reward is nothing. Uh, I realized very quickly that horses love first and foremost safety over everything. If you put on fire, like if you put like a big giant wall of fire, you can put like 50 tons of carrots on the other side. Your horse is not going to cross the fire to go get the carrots because his desire of staying safe and alive is bigger than his desire of eating carrots. So um, I don't touch, I don't talk. When my horse reply and when my horse answer the way that I want it to do, I trying to find like a very, low level of energy of everything. I'm really trying to ground myself. I stop staring at him. Um, I don't touch. I don't make noise. I don't give treats. I just take a moment. I just give them a big, big break. And that's going to go for as long as I feel that the horse is still processing the information. And there's a few things. Like if you see that he keep his head high and breathing heavily, he's not ready yet to, skip, to pass to the next exercise. So I always try to make sure that whatever the horse um, when you give me a good, a good answer, I just stop right away everything I do. I just stop. So, so fascinating actually, because um, what, uh, I have a really good friend, his name is Bruce Olson, he's in Richmond. 
Um, and when I met him, he was doing reining horses. And um, he was, he's also a musician and he plays the drums and sings. So he's quintidextrous, right? Okay. He can do different rhythms. And, you know, for him, what he would say is he stops asking as he senses the horse about to do the task. He doesn't mm -hmm. even wait for it to finish. He just stops asking. And that he, you know, that's the, that is the release. That is the reward. That is the carrot, is the cessation of request. It, I couldn't be more agree with that too. Um, to me, it's a, it's a very good way of doing things. And it's also a very good way to avoid um, accident and frustration. Like sometimes, really often I hear people telling me like, my horse is lazy or my horse don't respond to my leg. Uh, that's the kind of thing that I hear very often. Or, I cannot launch my horse, it's like heavy, I need to whip him several times to just get him to stay on a walk. And um, to me, if you're able to just ask one step, even if it's just one step is not a full circle, you already win, you're already launching your horse. So there is two different ways of doing it. Either you pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing your horse when he was walking to try to get him to trot or to try to get him to canter, which if you find yourself with a, a very um, reluctant horse is not going to walk, or you can just stop and thank him for that one step that it took. And then you ask for a second step. And then you ask for a third one. Um, and by being able to follow that process and walking, uh, maybe when we were talking earlier about positive reinforcement, so giving them the opportunity to do one step, two step, three step, then in the end of like 30 minutes or 40 minutes, that's done. Your horse launched both hands, uh, walk, trot, and canter. But if you try to push, then you just create resistance. If you create resistance, then you create a fight, and then nothing good comes out of it. Yeah. Um, so someone's asking, could you share an example of how your approach with the horse applies to your riding? Um, I don't understand the question. <laughs> um, so we've talked a lot about liberty work. Yes. So when you're in the saddle, how yes. do you apply these same ideas when you're in the saddle? Uh, I do. I do for uh, first of all, the, my philosophy when I'm on the ground or when I'm on my horses, I have the same. Um, so taking my time, being able to recognize every uh, effort that the horse made, to being able to stop at the right time and don't ask more than what my horse can give. Uh, to me, that's very important. That's a hard one. That's a yeah. really hard one to not ask more than your horse can give. I think that's that's one of the hardest things is is to know where that line is especially when you know your horse, because uh, as a clinician, it's always easy, I found, to jump on a horse and make him doing crazy things in front of an audience, because I don't know the horse, so I'm going to stop at the right time. But when you start to know more, you start to know your horse more, you're like, oh, Monday, give me that, Tuesday, give that, and now we are Wednesday, and it should give me at least as much, maybe even more. But no, Wednesday is more tired than it was on Monday or Tuesday. And then this is the moment where you should have stopped. And yes, it might be not as good as the two days before, but that was his limit today. So being able to stop there before to start to create frustration and, uh, and resistance is very important. Yeah. And um, that's something that I hear people often say is, well, my horse should know better. Like he shouldn't, he, like he's been past that rock five times and today he's shying at that rock. He should know better. And, and I find that that's kind of a, a common thought that we think that once we've taught them something, they should know it and they should be able to push the button and have it happen every time. But I'm sure in your performances that it never works out like that. I, no, and, uh, and anyway, it's not something that I wish, but like people trying to say that, it would be like if I give, uh, if I get mad at my grandmother because for Christmas she gave me 50 bucks and not 100 like last year. 
this is absurd. This is ridiculous. If my grandmother gave me 50 bucks this year, I'm already happy for those 50 bucks. And I cannot expect to have the same than the year before. Of course, you want to keep a constant with the horse and you want to be on an um, evolutive and you know, keep training, keep performing and uh, keep increasing the level. But that doesn't mean that it's, it's um, uh, that doesn't mean that they owe you that. They don't owe you anything. Right. So it's that day, no, there is no such thing. I like, it should know better. Like, no, today they didn't want to do it. That's okay. Maybe tomorrow is going to give you twice as much if you respect that moment. Right. And that, that's the thing I think that is hard for people to understand that just like people, and I, I, so I used to take ballroom dancing lessons at the rec recommendation of Bettina Drummond, actually. Mm -hmm. And um, I would go, I, we had the same dance teacher and he would watch me walk in the door and go, I'm not going to teach her anything new today. We're just going to reinforce what we've done before. Because <laughs> he could tell the moment I walked in the door, this was not a day to give me something new. You know, and it's that ability to recognize some, not every day is a day where we're going to advance. There is, um, there's funny things about dancers. Like there's a lot of similar point between dancers and, uh, and horse riders. And I figure that because my wife is a dancer. So yeah. um, I just realized that everything that she learned about like classical ballet and modern jazz and all those different uh, dance that she learned and she did and now she teach. Uh, there's a lot of similar point, but there's stuff were very interesting. My wife, to teach um, choreography to her students, use the warm-up moment to teach them different movements, but people don't even realize that during the stretching exercise, they actually are doing this warm-up exercise, they actually already start to learn the choreography. And then after 15 or 20 minutes, she's like, okay, now we can do the choreography. And people are like, which choreography? The one that you've been teaching. And I find that very interesting. And with horses, I like to do the same. So I'm going to teach my horses to come and join me on certain commands, certain cue, but they don't even realize it. So what I'm going to do, for instance, I'm going to ask them, I'm going to launch. I'm going to launch my horse, like everyone will launch our horse. But the way that I'm going to call my horses to come back to me and switch direction is a bit different than what other people does. Which means that in the end, I just remove the lead rope. And if I start to do the same movement, my horse will just come back to me. I didn't focus on trying to call him and bring him to me. I make him focus on switching direction, but always doing it towards me. And then when you remove the lead rope, your horse already knows that you by earth. Very cool. Very, yeah, very cool. Yeah, and, and it's, um, it's, in some ways, it's we really have to kind of think through what it is that we want so that we're already teaching that at the baby level. And my example of that is when I taught Pony Club. I taught Pony Club for six years with Allie Thurston at Wilton Pony Club, and she kept going. But um, our little kid, normally little kids, they would just teach them to jump just once around the outside. But with our kids, we taught them at, at 18 inches how to do all kinds of complex courses so that when they got older, they could jump all the patterns because they'd already done it. Right. Yeah. Right. I know uh, I have an old friend in France who was teaching his, um, the kids how to fall off from a pony or from a horse. So that way they never be scared. I haven't been that far yet, but I find the concept interesting. Hey, people know how to jump off a horse when they are full speed. Of course, they're not scared anymore. Yeah. Or less. Yeah. 
Well, the hour has flown by, Julian. This has been really, really fascinating. Um, are you? St I know that you were doing clinics. Are you? Well, right now nobody's doing clinics. But um, do you plan to go back to doing clinics and workshops? Yes, I hope so. I hope so. Right now, I'm very actually. I'm kind of thankful to having the time to really more focus on my horses, uh, which is great because it's something that I didn't have the time to do before. So uh, I'm here. I walk my horses, and so where are you? <laughs> Great Falls. Great Falls. You're in Great uh, Falls. What's the name of the stable? Uh, South Down Farm. Say it again. South Down. That's a very hard one for me to say. I know. Down. Something down. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but we can find you on Facebook, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, you can find Julian Vignon on Facebook and. Um, and when you go back to doing clinics, I'm sure that you'll post those up there on Facebook as yes, well. We do, for sure. um, I really, I so enjoyed watching you with the clinic that you did. And it was so eye-opening to see such a different perspective, something that people have done for a long time, but doing it in such a different way that for me resonated so strongly with a, a heartfelt connection that the horses really were um, respected and and had choice and i keep coming back to this idea of giving horses some choice and that when we do that they give us so much more i'm agree i'm agree yeah well, so, thank you for having me wendy it was great yeah, thanks, thanks everybody for joining us you can find this in all my other webinars on my youtube channel surefoot equine and tomorrow i have dr sybil mole we're going to talk about kinesio taping and surefoot pads so until then thank you all for joining me and thank you julian for being my guest bye -bye. it's been a pleasure great to see you maybe i'll see you in person sometime soon bye okay bye <laughs>